Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1930 through 1939. Today's story is of a female murderer from 1936. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1936, the book Gone with the Wind was published. Written by Margaret Mitchell, the book soon became one of the best-selling novels in history, winning the Pulitzer Prize in 1937. By 1939, it had been made into a very popular, Academy Award-winning, classic American movie. That same year, the Rural Electrification Act became law bringing electricity to the more remote parts of the country. This act was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The law provided low-cost loans to rural farmers to help them create cooperative electric power companies. The cooperatives would then bring electricity into homes in the rural regions of the United States. The act revolutionized rural America by bringing more of the country into the modern world and equalizing the opportunities of urban and rural communities. Another thing that happened in 1936 was a mom charged with poisoning her daughters. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Thelma Williams was born on April 1, 1902, in Hawkins County, Texas, to parents who worked as cotton farmers. Thelma had no interest in the farming life, but lived for the nightlife of drinking and partying. At age 15, she married 28-year-old William Wesley McCasland in 1917, later on claiming she married the man out of spite because her father objected to the boy she was really in love with. The couple moved back to Sulphur Springs to live, and when Prohibition came in 1920, her husband, known to everyone as Dester, began his criminal career running bootleg whiskey. The two had three children together, William Jr., Billy Fay, and Dorothy Leon. However, their relationship didn't last, and while Dester was serving his second state prison term for bootlegging, Thelma divorced him. After the divorce, Thelma moved to Commerce, Texas, and married a railroad brakeman and bootlegger named Raymond Kelly. They were together from 1929 to 1931. The short marriage due to the children, who apparently caused friction in their marriage, Thelma later speaking about her relationship with Kelly was quoted as saying, We got along famously until the difficulties arose because of the children. He made me a good husband. After her second failed marriage, Thelma learned the trade of hairdressing and opened up a beauty shop. A year later in 1932, she married for the third time to Bill Patterson, another bootlegger, and 
a criminal partner of her first husband, Dester. Twelve years older than Velma, Bill was a fun-loving, practical joker and a divorced father of four children. He regularly got caught and sent to prison for running whiskey. So Velma again picked up the slack, acquired a maid, Annie Cooper, and the two moved with the children to a house in commerce. The kids were known to be well-mannered and attended school regularly, despite their unusual home life with its all-night parties, bootleg liquor, and prostitution. Thelma was frequently absent, attending late-night dances in Wolf City, Paris, and at East Texas State Teachers College, where she and her dates were fixtures at the president's annual Christmas ball. Sadly, the time for fun was soon to run out, as tragedy struck Belma during the late summer of 1935, when her husband, Bill Patterson, died from injuries suffered during an impromptu wrestling match with his brother, Fred. He endured agonizing pain for several days, finally expiring from peritonitis during an emergency operation at a Greenville hospital at 44 years old. She received $1,300 from his life insurance policy and used it to buy a new house by the railroad yards in Northeast Commerce. Then on November 24, 1935, Thelma was seriously injured in an automobile accident. One night while driving her late model automobile to Shiloh, she took a curve on a county road at too high a speed skidded on the wet highway, and slammed into a stalled car that had run out of gas. A third vehicle then rear-ended her car. A friend of Velma's, unidentified, but was most likely to be Annie Cooper, was in the passenger seat and thrown into a field. Velma suffered head injuries so severe that she was taken to a hospital in Allen, Texas, some 70 miles away. In December, Dester got out of prison and moved in with Velma to help care for the children. Soon after, he and the maid, Annie Cooper, became lovers. And sadly, just after New Year's, 1936, tragedy struck with a force. As a mysterious illness hit 11-year-old Billy Fay, who was diagnosed as intestinal influenza by a local doctor. She suffered from convulsions, high fever, delirium, sensitive joints, and an inability to urinate. Four long days, she suffered in agony before dying on January 7th. Then a few weeks later, Dorothy Leon, Thelma's 12-year-old daughter, fell ill. She suffered horrible pains for several days, displaying all of the same symptoms as her sister, before dying on February 16th, 1936. D.M. Newton, the Hunt County Sheriff, believed the girl's death to be more than just coincidences and did not buy the intestinal influenza diagnosis. His view of Velma being a part of the criminal enterprise of bootlegging did not help his suspicions, so he relayed his thoughts to the district attorney's office, 
and Prosecutor Henry Parr convened a grand jury to investigate the deaths. At this same time, the sheriff requested the commissioner's court for an order to exhume the girls' bodies. With Velma's permission, the bodies were taken from their resting places, where bits and pieces of internal organs were removed and placed in glass jars, then transported to Dallas to the private laboratory of noted chemist Dr. Landon C. Moore. He reported to Hunt County officials that he had discovered a large quantity of poison in Billy Fay's and Dorothy Leon's viscera. He reported that the children were murdered with arsenic, administered either in their food, medicine, or drink. A grand jury indicted Velma on March 31, 1936, and Sheriff Newton arrested her on the charge of murdering Billy Fay. He also jailed Dester McCaskland and Annie Cooper as material witnesses. This arrest became national news, with the reporters from across the country flocking to Hunt County to record the personal backgrounds and daily doings of all the principals involved in the case. Deputy Sheriff V.L. Delaney told reporters that a search of Belma's cell had turned up a bottle of poison, a razor blade, and several letters in which she gave instructions for disposition in the event of her death and also instructions for the care of her 15-year-old son. However, the poison turned out to be a bottle of Lysol to disinfect her cell. The razor blade was in fact a knife, but the suicide notes seemed to be genuine. Thelma told reporters from the Commerce Farm Weekly that she was innocent stating, I'm not a Christian. I have done things that a lot of good mothers wouldn't do, but I firmly believe that God won't let an innocent person suffer for something they did not do. I'm doing everything I possibly can to get cleared. It costs plenty to get the children exhumed. I had to put up my house, sell my rings, and my people are spending all they have. I tried my best to be a good mother. I spent money on violin lessons for Junior, expression lessons for Dorothy, and tap dancing lessons for Billy Fay. That was my only purpose in life, to bring those girls up to be something. Dester, who was also in prison as a material witness in the case, expressed to reporters that he blamed Velma squarely for the deaths. That woman is mean enough to do anything, he said. She framed me on a liquor charge in order to get me sent to the pen, all in an effort to effect a divorce so she could consort with Raymond Kelly. Prosecutors first indicted Velma for Billy Fay's death but then reversed their indictment and instead charged her with murdering Dorothy Leon. The reason for this was revealed during trial when they gave their theories for the murders. After several delays and a postponement, the trial began on April 27, 1936. The case being so widely known meant that the courtroom was packed, standing room only mostly by poor farm women. 
One reporter wrote, Most of the women were elderly, weather-tanned, work-drawn faces, and crude clothing that marked them as coming right off the farm. Many brought their lunches and stayed in the Hunt County courtroom from 7 a.m. until 5 o'clock p.m. recess. One of the women spectators stated, It's seldom something like this happens around here, and we just come in to see the show. At the beginning of the trial, Judge Barry admonished the audience saying he would not stand for foolishness. But during the trial, he banged his gavel frequently, trying in vain to hush the crowd that insisted on discussing among themselves each witness's testimony. The judge even had to ban one woman altogether for refusing to take her crying baby outside. The prosecution offered the all-male jury two theories for the murders. First, that Velma had a lover, a wealthy lone oak cattleman named Jimmy R. Wallace. In the bluntest terms, the girl stood in the way of her relationship with Wallace, and their elimination would leave her free to marry him. The second theory posed was that Velma had two life insurance policies worth $551 on Dorothy with the American Life Insurance Company. At this time, this was a considerable sum during the Depression and equal to half a year's income for many of the cotton farmers. The insurance motive is believed to be the reason the prosecution dropped Billy Fay from the indictment and replaced her with Dorothy. But in the end, that did not really matter, as the trial judge, Charles Berry, allowed in full testimony about Billy Fay's death, even though the defense fiercely objected. The defense was led by local attorneys Charles C. McKinney and G.C. Harris. They insisted that, one, the flu medicine given to both Billy Fay and Dorothy Leon was a bismuth compound fatally contaminated with arsenic at a local drugstore, or two, Esther McCasland and Annie Cooper conspired to murder the girls for reasons unknown, or three, natural arsenic found in the ground at the girls' gravesite contaminated their remains during the removal process. For the prosecution, Annie Cooper and Dester McCasland testified about incriminating statements Velma allegedly made concerning her lover Wallace. Her remarks that she soon would have enough money to repair her wrecked car and her apparent callousness towards the dying girls. Cooper further testified that she was a divorcee who worked as Velma's maid. She stated that Velma was deeply in love with the cattleman and wanted to marry him, if it wasn't for the children, and claimed that Velma warned her after Dorothy's death to keep your little mouth shut about me buying the poison. Tester testified that Dorothy begged not to be given any more of her mother's breast medicine, and that Dorothy begged for a doctor, and that he asked Velma if we had better call one. But she said no. Wait until morning. Dester also told the court he remembered the last few words his daughter said to him before her death. She was struggling for breath and in convulsions when she begged him to take her where she could get fresh air. He said she died while he was holding her in his arms 
after carrying her to the back porch. He stated, she died before I could get her back to the bedroom. Fred Patterson, brother of Velma's third husband, Bill, testified to a conversation he had with Velma, where she told him she was in love with Jimmy Wallace and was thinking of marrying him. I wonder what my family would think about it. Fred stated he had visited his sister-in-law's home several times from January 4th to 17th and saw Wallace there frequently, often before they ate breakfast. Expert witnesses testified to the pros and cons of contaminated bismuth used as flu medicine and possible arsenic contamination at the grave sites during exhumation. The most important witness, however, was Dr. Landon C. Moore, distinguished Harvard graduate and Dallas City chemist. He was on the stand for two solid hours as he described, in long and often excruciating detail, his methods of examining little bits and pieces of stomach, liver, and kidneys. His findings, he said, were irrefutable. The girls had been poisoned with several grains of arsenic, each mixed in with their bismuth-based flu medicine and probably soup as well, and fed to them by their mother. The defense countered with their own expert testimony, trying their best to shift the blame on the pharmacist who prepared the bismuth solution with a partnership between Dester McCasland and Annie Cooper. They had friends, relatives, and beauty shop operators on the stand to testify about Velma's fierce devotion to her children. They even recalled Annie Cooper to the stand for cross-examination and accused her and Dester of poisoning the girls. But she was defiant and denied any sinister involvement in the girls' deaths. She testified that she took care of the dying children and that Velma was in bed with Jimmy Wallace the night Dorothy fell ill. The defense made much of the fact that Dester did not attend his daughter Dorothy's funeral, but Annie Cooper shrugged. But Annie Cooper shrugged it off, saying his non-appearance was the result of illness. Yet others testified that he was just too drunk to go. The children's general physician, Dr. Alvin Waller, testified that he was called to the Patterson home last February 17th and found the child in a comatose condition, stating she was restless but not complaining. She died within 10 minutes of Dr. Waller being there, but he couldn't state whether she died from intestinal influenza or poisoning. And explained Miss Patterson appeared genuinely anxious concerning the child's condition. His father, Dr. L.T. Waller, signed the death certificate, attributing death to intestinal influenza, and was next up to testify. He testified that he was not there when the girl died, as he was out of town, but had previously made three trips to the Patterson home, and on the first visit made a general examination of Dorothy. He found her nauseated and vomiting, prescribed her with a medicine containing bismuth, and a day or two later returned to find the girl had improved. 
She had a strong heart when he examined her. Under cross, he stated, I don't know what caused the death, and it is a rare thing for intestinal influenza to prove fatal, and the death percentage was light. In Prosecutor Farr's closing arguments, he demanded the death penalty for Velma. Special counsel James Benton Morgan, on loan from the state to help with the prosecution, blamed Velma's alleged murders on old-fashioned lust for the lone oak cattleman Jimmy Wallace. Quoting from Song of Solomon, Morgan declared that a woman in the arms of her passionate lover is a slave. The jury led by foreman Felcher B. Bland retired at 4.55 p.m. and deliberated until 3 p.m. the next day. The jury found Velma Patterson not guilty. The courtroom erupted and Velma herself shouted with joy as the verdict was announced. She ran to the jury box and shook hands with each jury member and the judge. She bubbled over with enthusiasm, smiling and speaking animately. One of the jury members, Bill Riddle, later told a newspaper reporter that the jury immediately rejected the testimony of lovers, Dester and Annie, and that decision made the final verdict inevitable because the judge told the jury that if they believed McCaslin's and Cooper's version of events, they would have to convict Velma. If they did not, they would have to return a not guilty verdict. So there was nothing to do, Riddle said, but turn her loose because we couldn't believe those two. Chemist Landon Moore, however, came in for special derision. He was just an old windjammer, Riddle snorted, adding, The jury didn't care about how many times he's been across the ocean or how he was the grandson of one of the few Democratic governors of Ohio. Why, he told himself how he ran a picture show at Cooper and about owning a racehorse. I'd rather believe a home doctor anyway. And Farr's closing argument made us all tired. I didn't even listen to him because I had my mind made up after the first day. However, Velma's troubles were not over. Sheriff Newton, upset over her acquittal, slapped Velma with seven liquor violations to keep her in jail until District Attorney Farr could charge her with Billy Fay's murder. Her total bail for the two crimes was $8,800. Nine people came forward to post the amount, but the sheriff rejected them all. Thelma's lawyers fired a mandamus petition, and three weeks after her trial, she was finally released from jail. Her acquittal resulted in the political ruin of the sheriff, his deputy, and most of the elected prosecution staff. They were all fired or voted out by the next election term. Thelma was scheduled to be tried for Billy Fay's murder in November 1936 but the prosecution's ace witness, Dr. Moore, fell ill, and since the new political regime dragged its feet, a second trial never took place. Two years later, State Special Counsel Morgan was quoted as saying, 
If a jury wouldn't stick a woman on what we gave them the last time, there is no use trying. Thelma Patterson left Commerce to live with her parents in Charleston, Texas. Then a year and a half after her trial, on November 27, 1937, she married her fourth husband, Newton Bud Bates, a former professional wrestler turned dairy farmer. Under her middle name, Marie, in Paris, Texas, in hopes to throw reporters off her trail. The couple settled down on a small Charleston farm and joined the East Delta Baptist Church across the road. Hunt County did attempt to indict Velma again in 1958, this time for the murder of Billy Fay. However, the indictment was eventually dismissed because evidence was not available as chemist Landon had died in 1942 and the offense occurred more than 22 years ago. Thelma Patterson died at 90 years old on January 2nd, 1993. I want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, John Hanners, and his paper, We Just Come In to See the Show, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, the Texas True Crime Podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing a case from the year 1937. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to my Patreon. I would also love for you to hit the subscribe button and to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.